Hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to another edition, our post-Thanksgiving edition of Business Casual, our weekly podcast, with my co-host, Maria Wickvilla of Applicant Lab and Caroline Diorty Edwards of Fortuna Admissions, the former director of admissions at NCOD. So today we want to talk about the future of the MBA. Most of you probably know that in the last three to five years, depending on the MBA program, applications have been declining. Some people, the naysayers out there, have written the obituary for the MBA, which is, of course, the most popular graduate degree in America and has been for some time. But things are changing right now. In fact, the latest survey of applicants by the Graduate Management Admissions Council, nearly three out of four full-time two-year MBA programs in in the United States reported growth in applications. One in three reported significant growth of 20% or more. The growth in the U.S. and Canada was higher than that of Asia, Pacific, and Europe. But overall, among the programs that responded to the GMAC surveys, the total number of applications increased for Canada by 13%, in Europe by 24%, in the United States by 21%. But our conversation about the future of the MBA is more than just whatever growth has occurred as a result of the pandemic or the recession. We want to look at the future of the MBA beyond this pandemic and the increase in applications. Now, I think all three of us are very bullish on the best programs that deliver the best results. But I wonder, you know, outside the top 25 schools in the world that offer superb, exceptional MBA experiences, what does the future of the MBA really look like? Caroline? Well, I I think, as you say, the top schools will probably continue And, you know, their model is not very flexible, right? So it's difficult for a two-year program like Harvard or Stanford to just shake up the format. (laughs) They have, um, you know, a fixed cost structure. It's a big machine, right? It's not easy to change. And educational institutions are not known for being, you know, incredibly innovative in in the way that they run their their own institutions, good at teaching innovation, less good at practicing it themselves. So, so I think that for the top schools, they will continue probably to, to operate as they do right now. But I, I think outside of that group, there's going to continue to be a shakeout, I, I think, among other schools. I think it, it's harder for schools further down the pecking order to, to continue to attract students when there are so many options now for people to study online and not necessarily have to take two years out and you know relocate for the purposes of, of, of pursuing that degree. So so I think that there will be other options that continue to proliferate and you know online blended options. I think that also it will be interesting to see how schools address the need for for continuous learning because I mean there's been a lot of discussion about how you know learning for your career is not just about getting one-shot experience in your 20s. You need to continually update yourself. And and people do, but sometimes actually going back to school could be very helpful at at different stages in the career. So there's been, you know, some discussions of sort of stackable degrees where perhaps you start at one stage and then 
you go back to work and then you come back and do a module at a later date and you can perhaps sort of mix and match modules from different institutions. I think that that's probably not something that the top schools will do straight away, but perhaps some other institutions that are looking to sort of reinvent themselves and attract new students could could certainly experiment with. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think one consequence of the application decline before the pandemic was a lot of experimentation, innovation, largely by second-tier programs with stackable credentials, with modules that you can then take for credit and apply toward a, an MBA program later on, with the proliferation of the online MBA option, which has really come on strong with more than 350 online programs in the United States alone. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. The other thing that you refer to has been talked about for decades, lifetime learning. And business educators are predicting it's right around the corner. But I think more than ever, the future of the MBA is going to be tied into lifetime learning because you know, we live in an incredibly fast-paced world and a dynamic one. The change is off the charts. We're going to see a massive disruption due to artificial intelligence and machine learning as it gets applied to business and technology throughout the world. And dealing with that and understanding it and mastering it will be an important part of the toolkit for every executive. So being able to go back to school or a refresher, even if it's online, incidentally, or go back for a long weekend for a refresher course on how AI can be leveraged for strategic and competitive advantage, or how important business analytics are to decision-making today. These are all skills that MBAs who graduated five or 10 years ago, they have no exposure to, had no exposure to, and could benefit from. Maria, are you bullish or bearish about the future of the MBA? Well, I think I, I think I would sort of dissect it out into two different sections. I, I would almost say I'm very, very bullish on the future of business education in general, whether or not that ends up taking the form of the traditional MBA degree or the traditional MBA uh, you know, certification, I'm not sure. But I definitely think you know the skills that you learn in a in a graduate business program are applicable across virtually. In fact, every industry, right? Like there isn't there isn't a single industry out there, uh, except I guess maybe being like a socialite, where you you like you don't have to think about budgets. Like, of course, even if you're in the nonprofit sector, even if you're running a charter school, even if you're in the government, right? You have to think about things like how do you budget things, how do you communicate, how do you motivate and inspire employees. I mean, these are these are almost like universally applicable issues, and so I think that the value of what MBA programs teach is and will continue to be very vital, whether or not they take the form of, you know, like these stackable mini degrees, as, as Caroline mentioned, or certificate programs that are maybe five or six mini modules uh, here or there. You know, I, overall, I am I am bullish. Yeah. And, and for the top ranked schools, top, let's just say the top 25 in the world, you don't see any of them going away, do you? I, I don't, because I think that they have invested some of them over a century, literally into you know, decades and decades, if not more, into developing what are the skills that business leaders need. And I think that that, you know, that, that sort of knowledge, that institutional knowledge, I think is really valuable. So I don't necessarily think that the, the very top programs are necessarily threatened. I do think, though, I do wonder if the top programs will start offering 
maybe they themselves will start offering more of these mini stackable courses. Yeah. I mean, to date, there have been a few MOOCs from the top schools. Wharton is a real pioneer in that. I, I think the MOOC thing has kind of jumped the shark, but I see more executive education going online. And some of that could very easily be courses that you get for credit instead of a certificate that you then can apply to the MBA program and maybe waive some course requirements. What, what about the use of online learning? I mean, right now, because of the pandemic, schools have largely shifted all of their in-person instruction online. And those shifts are uh, allowing the schools to learn how to more effectively teach from a distance. And in many ways, you know, when you when you talk to professors who've done this, who hadn't done it before, they'll tell you that they've learned things that will make them better teachers when they return to the classroom, meaning there will be more flipped classrooms for rote learning, you know, preserving classroom time for more dynamic discussion. There will be more stuff that will be taken out of the out of the courses that they had taught for years because it's really not essential to the learning objectives of the course. What's your take on that, Caroline? Yeah, it's been a baptism of fire for the, for the faculty this year, hasn't it, in learning to get to grips with online teaching. And um, so it's sort of accelerated that process dramatically. You know, probably without the pandemic, we are at a point now where otherwise you know, business schools might have been in about 10 years' time in terms of the ability to deliver online. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that they leverage that that knowledge and that experience when we go back to you know whatever the new normal will be. So yes, I would imagine that there are some elements of the of the courses that can be effectively delivered online, and and that might work well for everybody. And and as you say, I mean, it could free up classroom time for for more of the sort of value added discussion. Something that I, I thought was interesting I heard from, from Stanford was that the faculty were saying that actually with, um, with online, um, online classes, uh, it's actually, it can be more difficult to deal with a large group, right, than, than actually in a physical classroom. And so sometimes, you know, in an online, if, if they're trying to do discussion, you actually have to break it down into smaller groups than you would if you were teaching live. So online is not, it's not an ideal format for some types of teaching and, you know, can actually be less efficient in some ways for that sort of dynamic discussion. Um, but for some of the, as you said, the sort of the, the rote type learning or where it's more sort of lecture based, uh, that, that there's, there's no reason why more of that couldn't effectively be done online. And of course, you know, it means that it gives a wider group access to the, the star professors, right? You get your strategy lecture or your accounting lecture from, from the school star professor rather than, you know, only a, a few of the, the sections at the school getting that particular professor. Yeah, that's really true. In fact, I've often wondered why there isn't a school that essentially takes the best professors in every discipline in the world and puts them together in one MBA program. Of course, the answer is the schools wouldn't let the best professors do that for another school that would somehow be able to get the power to offer the credential of an MBA to its students. But what about, let me do it this way. Let's play a game because I love to play games. Uh-oh. And we're going to call the game <laughs> uh, Dean for the Day. So, Maria, you are the dean. Oh. 
of a business yes. school that is not it. ranked in the top 50. It yeah. has an MBA program that's essentially in the red and has been in the red for a number of years. It enrolls fewer than 100 students full-time a year. You're, you're looking at the future of this program. How do you either turn it around or how do you, what do you do to offset the losses well, well, you know, I, I'm addicted to power, so I really love this idea of being a dean. So thanks, John. I really, this is really psychologically beneficial for me right now. Said like a true I, Harvard MBA. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, yes, I'm rubbing my hands together in an evil cartoon villain way right now. It's great. No, so I think, look, I think MBA, the smaller MBA programs who might be in the red, I think they have a number of options. I think one thing that might be super beneficial is for them to consider the fact that basically the biggest reason anyone pursues any of this education is because they either want to get a new job or they want to do better at their existing job. And so focusing on career outcomes, perhaps, you know, maybe devoting a lot more energy to developing, you know, partnerships with corporations, for example, and saying like, look, we will give you free MBA talent if you become more open to hiring our graduates, right? So then that way it, it helps limit this risk, this perceived risk of, well, what if I take this class and I sign up for this MBA that only has 20 people in it and then they shut it down in a year and what's that, what's that going to mean for my, for my career? So I think that schools could do it a couple of ways. I think they could – I do think that some schools need to start to focus uh, perhaps instead of offering – let's say, I don't know, 12 or 15 different majors, maybe they really look at, okay, what are we really good at? Like, what are our strategic advantages? You know, for example, I, I would think that some schools in the Midwest, you know, there's a huge interest, a burgeoning interest in things like eco-friendly farming, right? And Or using uh, internet of things to help farmers grow things better. And I can imagine that a school maybe like, I don't know, Purdue, that has a very strong agricultural program, maybe this could be something that they look at their broader university and they say, well, what are some unique, you know, what are some unique aspects to our to our institution that we can leverage? And instead of trying to be all things to all people, we become the go-to school for ag tech, agricultural technology, for example. So I think that's that's something that I would, you know, I would develop those relationships. I would, I would focus on what I'm good at, and then I would go and really develop those strong partnerships with corporations so that my, my career outcomes for my students are excellent. So, Maria, you've made me even more impressed with a Harvard MBA education than I was before. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you why. Because most deans in, in the position that I described are focusing on the front end, not the back end. They're focusing on recruitment strategies, scholarship aids, discounting MBAs, and things like that. When you're right, it's, it's the outcomes uh, that, frankly, matter more. And if you can deliver those outcomes and show them in an employment report, you're going to be far better off than maybe focusing on the front end of the program, uh, marketing, recruiting, uh, going all over the world trying to find students and discounting tuition for them. That's where most deans have gone. So that's that's a really impressive answer. I love it. I just <laughs> just lot. imagine if I had said it with gravitas. Just yeah. imagine what I'd be. <laughs> well, uh, didn't you say that what percentage of the Harvard MBA is your ability to BS? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, so eight, yeah, two thirds of HBS is BS. So 
you know, it's, not, it's not, not, BS in, not BS in the sense that we may conventionally, conventionally define it, which is total BS. It's oh yeah, no, 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 not the t- yeah. The, the 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 subject matter is not. I mean, it's the ability to BS when put on the spot. There you go. As I may or may not have just been put on the spot by you. <laughs> I don't know, Maria. You get a high pass from me. <laughs> Maker scholar, here I come, retroactive. Okay, Caroline, your your time to sit in the dean's chair. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so I so I agree with what Maria said, and I think that also the benefit of a smaller program is that you can have a lot more sort of personal interaction and 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 individual coaching and that sort of personal relationship with with faculty. So, you know, I think the smaller programs should should really leverage that and, and, and sell that. You know, there is definitely, it's definitely a different experience being in a class of 100, as you say, versus being in a class of many, um, many hundreds or, um, you know, even a thousand students at INSEAD a year and, and that many, you know, heading in that direction at some of the, the top schools. And from, you know, discussions that I've had with people who've worked at INSEAD and then have worked at other schools and gone to smaller schools is that, you know, they really appreciate that ability to have, you know, really get to know the students and and be able to, you know, have career coaching that's very focused on the individual, that the, the students can can have that kind of, you know, one-on-one relationship with, with the faculty and, and get that support. So I think that's something that, that those schools could 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 play up more, and and you know that's a, that's a benefit that I think is often undersold. Yeah, and the other point that you made, I think, is also important, which is this idea that the business school is not an island unto itself, right? And increasingly, what we're seeing is a greater emphasis on the business school embracing and welcoming other departments and colleges in the university, to the extent that a business school can leverage the expertise of other parts of the university and uh, bring it into the business school is another uh, potential competitive advantage for a program that's not ranked in the top 50 in the world. Uh, You know, uh, Maria mentioned agriculture at Purdue, also engineering at Purdue, you know, could be smartly worked into the MBA program, particularly for people who are going into the technology field and want to do engineering management, not just be a, you know, a grinded out day by day uh, developer of one kind or another. And you could see a lot more potential for that. In, in, in addition to the dual degree option, I mean, if a school has a great reputation in one area, be it law, medicine, engineering, computer science, what have you, environmental studies, there's the opportunity to not only get elective courses in those areas with your MBA, but to get two degrees in one and maybe to shorten some of the requirements to make that more amenable, more appealing to a greater numbers of people. So bottom line, I think we all believe the MBA is here to stay. Its permanence is more likely in more highly ranked, more well-endowed schools that have a uh, history and tradition of being uh, among the leaders in the business education field. And for all those uh, schools that are, you know, not as highly ranked, but have MBA programs that are much smaller, there is really no limit to experimentation, innovation, and reinvention that needs to happen to make your MBA a viable experience. 
You think that's the takeaway? Absolutely. Yeah. Excellent. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Good summary. <laughs> Besides which, you know, the more alumni you have with MBAs, the more likely you are to have uh, protesters if you shut your MBA program down. That is a certainty <laughs> based on the few schools that have actually shut down their MBA programs and have heard very loudly from their alumni constituents about how unhappy they are, even in some cases, people saying, I will never donate another dollar to you. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's productive. That's that is very productive. <laughs> What's that? You're shutting down because you don't have enough money? Well, bah, <laughs> I'm just going to give you less money. Oh. <laughs> sure. All right. There's your future of the MBA. We think that if you have doubts about the MBA, but you're headed for, you know, a top 25, top 50 school in the world, We don't think you should have doubts. And if you want to apply to another school below that level, you you should really look hard at, you know, what's the differentiation? What investment is the school making? How is it trying to make itself unusual, different, innovative, unique? Those are all, I think, important things. And I love, I just love Maria's advice to all you business school deans out there of smaller programs (laughs) in the red. Don't focus on the front end. Focus on the back end. Realize that people who apply to your program are applying to enhance the career opportunities to change jobs. That's where the focus should be, not on recruitment and cutting the tuition fees. There you go. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Thanks for listening to Business Casual. <laughs>